Welcome back to Evidence-Based Global Emergency Medicine. Our goal is to highlight the highest quality research around the world in emergency medicine development, disaster and humanitarian response, and emergency care in resource-limited settings. This podcast features top articles from the annual Global Emergency Medicine Literature Review. To learn more, visit our website at gemlr.org. In this episode, we'll be featuring the article, Evaluation of a Digital Triage Platform in Uganda, a Quality Improvement Initiative to Reduce the Time to Antibiotic Administration by Lee et al. I'll be speaking with the senior author, Mark Ansermino. Dr. Ansermino is the director of the Center of International Child Health at the University of British Columbia. He's a professor, a researcher, and a clinician in the Department of Anesthesiology, Pharmacology, and Therapeutics. In the paper, the research team developed a digital triage app which helped staff working in Barara, Uganda to rapidly identify critically ill children and facilitate timely IV antibiotic administration. I spoke to Dr. Ansermino about the development of the mobile application that was used for triage and how it improved outcomes for children who presented to the outpatient department in the Children's Hospital in Mbarara, Uganda. Tell me about how the idea for this study was developed. What inspired it? So the idea for this study came from ongoing work we had using data-driven prediction to reduce the mortality in children who were discharged from hospital. So for a number of years, we had looked at this issue of post-discharge mortality, and we had discovered that more children died post-discharge than died in hospital. And so we had taken a data-driven approach to this with risk models and then interventions that were targeted to specific high-risk individuals. So we're looking for other opportunities within facilities where we could use the same approach to reduce the risk to children, but without necessarily disrupting healthcare process or putting undue risk on what was happening. And of course, triage was the obvious opportunity for us because this was merely changing the order in which children were seen, prioritizing care, and every child would still be seen So the risk appeared to be low, but this was certainly something that was low-hanging fruit as far as taking a data-driven approach was concerned. I see. Okay. And so was it originally your thought that you would develop an app, or did you go through some different possibilities before deciding on that? So I'm a health informatician by training, a clinician, but a health medicine by training. So I've always had this belief that data is going to become the center of healthcare in the future in both high and low resource settings. So it was definitely going to be a data-driven approach. So I think that that would definitely mean that there was going to be some application that was going to be need for us to actually provide healthcare uh, workers with the data that they needed to actually make the clinical decisions that they needed to make. And we had done lots of work for, you know, nearly 20 years we've been working on this approach. And so I think that this was going to be important. 
We'd also done lots of work on sepsis. You know, one of my close collaborators, Tex Kassoon, is probably the leading expert for pediatric sepsis globally. And so this was very well aligned with his ambition of looking at what we could actually do to try and reduce the burden of sepsis. And certainly triage is one of those areas that there is good evidence that reducing time to treatment can reduce mortality. Absolutely. It seems so valuable. And to me, it's fascinating that you had decided to go ahead with this app and to understand how one would go about designing or creating something like that. I wanted to get a sense of the process. And so I was wondering if you could explain a little further about how you would go about getting something like that started or what kind of advice you would have for a researcher who was interested in conducting a project like this. Yeah, thank you. The, this is, as I said, a long story because you know we had been developing apps for a very long time for many different applications. And I fortunately had a strong technical team, a strong collaborator in Professor Guy Dumont, who's an engineer at the University of British Columbia, where I work. And we had some real experts, Chris Peterson and Dunsmuir, who are authors on the paper, who are real experts in technology development. And so, you know, there was a lot of foundational work for this. So first of all, we had built a cell phone-based pulse oximeter, one of the very first that were ever done. And we did have a company that we spun off that was trying to commercialize this. So we had a pulse oximeter integrated into the device that we could use. Additionally, we had done quite a lot of work in developing an application for measuring respiratory rate, which, you know, is clinically very hard to do to measure a minute and things like that, but was really done by just tapping the screen of a phone. And we demonstrated that in about 15 seconds, you could get a very accurate respiratory rate measurement. And the app could also tell you when you need a little bit longer to actually, if it was inconsistent, it would prompt you to go a bit longer. So those two things were the foundational work that we've done on this. We'd also done quite a lot of work on decision support in many different applications of how to use logic, essentially, in trying to manage patients. So all of this came together in this idea of doing this around triage. And the first opportunity that came for this really was a Google challenge that was launched called AI for Good that we applied to. And it was a relatively small amount of funding. So we applied for this and they provided some funding and some technical support, which is acknowledged in the manuscript, in actually going about developing this application. And, you know, having done this in the past, a lot of this is not the technical development. A lot of this is around the human aspects of developing an application. And that's what really takes the time is how to actually make sure that this is usable. And we went through many rounds of first getting a hold of experts together, what needed to be in the application, but then also working with our local collaborators on the ground who have actually been so fundamental in you know, making sure that this project is successful. And Stephen Bushinga and James Kayugaba, who are you know, really been the champions of this project from the train, you know, they gave us a lot of really good feedback and then we had various versions that we gave for them to have a look at and then did some formal sort of usability sessions with the team on the ground, but basically did this at a very 
user-centric approach to actually de developing the application. And of course, this morphed over time as we grew the application and went from the initial version to future versions. So to answer your question about how other people can get involved in this, I have a very good answer for this because we launched a thing called the Pediatric Sepsis Collab or Collaboratory in partnership with the World Federation of Pediatric Intensive Care and Critical Care Societies, WIFPIX, which we actually have a dataverse where you can download this application and use it. You can have a look at the processes that we've done subsequently in improving this application. So all of this is available open source, essentially for anybody to use. And it provides great detail, including the source code that you can modify in any way that you want to actually be able to use it for your applications. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for giving that description. That makes it sound so easy that anyone could do it, although I'm sure that's not really the case, but definitely think it's a frontier that, that many people could be getting involved in. I, I'm wondering about the feedback that you mentioned and what types of things you were hearing from the users on the ground that they noticed while they were using it? Was there anything that was surprising to you that came up or when you tried to use it in the real world that they talked to you about? Yeah. So I think with any project like this, there's the unanticipated consequences. <laughs> and we certainly learned that. And certainly one of the examples was that obviously with the initial implementation and the algorithm that we used is well described in the manuscript, which is really, you know, ETAT plus uh, a couple of prediction algorithms. So we used an algorithm that we had initially developed in some work we did in Bangladesh, as well as a risk score that was used for infants with pneumonia. So we had implemented both of these, but we had also used a number of what we call independent triggers, which is really a sort of approach to this, is that if you had this criteria, you would put into the emergency class. And we've... We'd obviously used fairly conservative tools for some of those things. So what we found in actual fact with the first implementation is that almost all of the children less than one years of age got classified emergencies. And fortunately, what we did with this is that we didn't do this live initially. And that's another big piece of advice is that we collected a whole lot of data that we essentially only applied the algorithms to the data retrospectively and then looked at what the outcome of doing this is. And, you know, that's another suggestion. If you're doing anything like this, you really need to do a lot of robust internal testing to make sure that, first of all, you haven't made a mistake in your code, but also the algorithms that you've done produce the desired outputs or your expected outputs of what you're actually trying to be doing. I think that Probably in the paper, we describe outcomes, but probably one of the most important outcomes that we had from the study and its ongoing implementation is that we get a full set of vital signs and anthropometrics on every single child, which certainly wasn't happening before this happened. So it kind of forces that in the clinical context. And one of the things that we had done because we'd implemented the pulse oximetry as a part of the application. So although it's a separate application was integrated into this app, we forced some processes that really encouraged the users to do a much higher, much more robust measurement of oxygen saturation. 
And, you know, just to give you an example, we would do two measurements on every child. We would also do a recording of the oxygen saturation for at least 30 seconds. And we would then take a median value of that. And these reasons for that, as soon as you put the probe on, it takes some time for the reading to stabilize. And a lot of people don't do that. Obviously, we get away with this idea of number preference when people don't just see a number and choose that number. We've actually got a recording of doing this. And also, we really provided through the user interfaces many motivations to get the best signal quality possible. So we had trained people this extreme changed color. You had to aim for the best color that you could get to actually try and do this. And of course, that took a lot of training and some time to learn for people to actually get that. So it did took some time. Initially, obviously, during the baseline phase, it was our research nurses that did that. But once we actually got to do implementation with all the clinical staff, uh, that took some time for them to actually do that. And even today, that is still a little bit of a struggle to maintain that in the sustainability of the program. I'm sure. And so when you encountered that situation where you discovered in retrospective review of patients who had presented that all of the infants were going to be coming out of this as emergencies. How did you then deal with that? Did you just discuss with the staff how they were going to handle that and when it went live? No, we what we did, we had to change the system. At that stage, we had to change the system mm-hmm. to actually be able to do that. At the end of the day, I think we still were probably a little bit conservative with young infants, which I think is been a concern. And we have ongoing efforts at this very time to improve the prediction algorithms for those young infants so that we rely less on the single parameter and rather rely on being able to combine multiple parameters that would indicate risk. And you'll appreciate that sepsis, which is really the condition we're looking at, is often unrecognized in these young infants. It's much harder to identify when these young infants are critically ill. And so it really is a very important part of the ongoing work that we have around the project. And now that we have you know, more than 20,000 children that we've triaged with this, we can now look at, and we have enough newborns and you know, older infants to look at, we can now define specific models that we're able to use in that younger age group. Okay. So I just wanted to know a little bit more about the technical side of this. And I was wondering about the decision to use the Android platform and whether that was just based on the electronics that the staff had available in your location. And you mentioned that you had several members of the team who are really experts in this area and sort of information technology. And I wondered whether you did all of this development within your team or whether you had to hire or use any external people to complete the project. Yeah, that's a great question. So first of all, we did all of this within our team. And one of our members of our team, Chris Peterson, had actually written a programming language of that was unique to our team, which is also an open source programming language called Lambda Native, very different programming language. And the advantage of this language is we could develop this application once and deploy it onto any platform, Apple, Android, Linux, whatever you want to do, just and do the development once, which is pretty unique and is probably not even today widely available. And that's still today what we use for this, the development of the applications that we do. It has migrated a little bit, 
but Lambda Native is how we program language. We did all of this in-house. And the reason we chose Android for this particular project was, first of all, obviously in Africa, Android phones are the, you know, the phones of the day. But of course, as I mentioned, that Google had sponsored a bit of this and they had actually given us the Pixel phones that we used for this particular study. <laughs> Oh, that absolutely makes perfect sense then. Okay. And so you had mentioned some issues with the implementation of the project, some of them which we've discussed already, but also in the paper, you mentioned that administering antipyretics at triage affected the ultimate use of the tool and that some patients who were very high acuity had bypass triage and maybe not been included in the study. And I was just curious about how you discovered the issues and how you responded to them over the course of the study. Yeah. So first of all, just to say that, I mean, obviously triage as we're doing here is not routinely done in many settings in East Africa. So although it might be recommended by WHO, it's resource intensive. It requires dedicated people, lots of training to actually make, make this happen. So the bottom line is that even at this facility that was doing quite well, relied on a fairly informal triage process, was really just you know a nurse who would kind of look and see a sick child and get them treated. So we didn't really want to disrupt some of those processes too much. So I think we were quite comfortable with the fact that an experienced nurse could actually go and take a child out and, you know, bring them to the front of the line, even if they hadn't been triaged. I think we were very comfortable with that. And I think that's a really important lesson when you're implementing these kinds of things is that you have to fit in with the workflow that's available in the current environment. And I think that, you know, this whole antipyretic use, all of these other kinds of things that we talked about going on, I think most of these just came around the dialogue. And we did have a fairly informal, but as much more recently become very formal quality and improvement process that happens around the implementation of the system. So the technology is just a tool. It doesn't really work if you don't get people to change. So we have now a much more formal process whereby this is driven by the local team and certainly James has been our champion in making all of this happen, so committed and dedicated to this, is getting his team together, even on a weekly basis, to talk about any issues that come up that you know he will communicate with us. Some of these are joint meetings. We have had people on the ground a lot of the time as well. And so it's been possible for us to sort of drive forward with the quality improvement process. And I think the outcome of the implementation of this tool has gone way beyond just the time to treatment, which is what we treat in this paper, because it's really changed the culture of the organization around quality improvement, which is not only driven by us. I think this is, you know, a national program around quality improvement that's been written, but I think it's a very tangible demonstration of a data-driven quality improvement process that can help to deal with some of these study limitations. And I think we mentioned these study limitations because it's this belief that you know, for us as researchers, we like to publish positive p-values and things like that and show that you actually made a difference. But at the end of the day, with many digital innovations and interventions, it's very hard sometimes to actually quantify the benefit that you have. And empowering the health worker to do something that they couldn't do before is sometimes very hard to actually measure. 
And those changes that we make in systems and cultures and things like that are probably much more important than what we can actually put in a manuscript around some clinical endpoint. There seems to be so much truth in that. I can only imagine what the true impact of the project would be if you were able to capture all these different, more intangible elements. I wondered, as you were alluding to that you have this ongoing quality improvement process, whether you foresee that this project has a sustainable future, that it will continue, and how you feel you could ensure that. That's certainly my goal. And Fortunately, we've got some additional funding to do the other parts to ensure that the science around this is correct. But certainly now we are hoping for more funding to ensure that we can scale this up so we can actually make sure that it's sustainable. I think that obviously trying to continue to demonstrate that the science is valid and our interest is particularly around these prediction algorithms. Obviously, there's a lot of ongoing work around doing this. You know, we were very fortunate that we chose the site that have just been amazing in (laughs) the way that they have championed this all along. And I'm going to tell you about a few things that we didn't do, but Stephen Bashinga led and James Curriaba has been the lead on this that have happened around this particular facility, which is part of Uganda Catholic Medical Bureau, which is Ronald Kasiaba, who's now the head of that organization, is also an author on the paper. But they have really taken this almost as a poster child of how to do quality improvement and sort of taken this right throughout the organization. So this program now is totally sustainable within their organization. They still need some technology support, and we can talk a little bit about that. But the culture of quality improvement has really taken on. But it's had amazing consequences. So the first thing they came and said to us is that we've noticed that you take all the anthropometric measurements we need to look at nutritional status of a child, we want the app to actually be able to have a dashboard for the nutritional team. So we then built a dashboard, very easy to do, for the nutritional team. So this then became almost a nutritional intervention, which is very important in the risk factors that we actually look at for these children. So this was like an unexpected thing. But just the other unexpected thing that happened with this institution is that the number of children that were coming to the institution dramatically increased. And obviously the word had got out that if you came here, you would be seen very quickly if you were sick. And so that had an impact. So although this is a not-for-profit organization, if you can afford it, you do need to pay something to actually go here. And of course, this is advantageous to the team as well, because obviously they can recruit more people. So they were able to recruit more people We've expanded the program to include other innovative elements that we've been able to test there. But going forward, the goal with this type of program is to implement it within the electronic health records that are available at the facilities. And we did do this from a very early stage. They had a fairly basic outpatient electronic health record that they were using at that time. So we did a lot of work to make sure that there was no duplicate effort in entering information. So all the triage information came into their system, but it also gave us a good opportunity to use that data to improve the reporting that we did and various other things that we could do with that. One of the biggest challenges we had was really around treatment tracking. So for the 
study period, we actually had a paid research nurse observing treatment. So we could track exactly when treatments happened. And we did a fairly good job in actually being able to do that. But in an ongoing basis, that's not possible. So we have developed a Bluetooth tracking system, very low cost Bluetooth tracking system to try and address this issue of tracking treatment. And we call this smart spot. So basically, one of the things we found very useful was to give a lanyard to each parent when their child had been triaged that they put around their neck with a color code of what category they've been put into. And on the bottom of that, we attach this little Bluetooth tracking system. And then around the facility, we have a few beacons that not only then give us the where they are located and can help us on the dashboard to track you know, when their treatment's actually been given, but in the treatment room, we also have an ability when we get a treatment beacon and a tracking beacon come together, we know that that child has actually re- received their treatment. So the nurse who's giving the treatment really just needs to tap the button on the beacon when the child's nearby, and that treatment automatically gets logged as being the child's treatment. It's not a perfect system yet, and obviously there is some cost to it, and we need to make sure we retrieve the beacons and all these other kinds of things that happen with this. But this was just another innovation that came about around how we tracked when children actually got treatment, because then we can use this. We've also moved this now to the other roadblocks that we saw in being able to provide urgent treatment. So first of all, is the drug available? And this required a lot of work with pharmacy. Often children would have to go to the pharmacy to get the medication first before they could actually get their treatments. And also there were stockouts, various other things, but so we could include this in the quality improvement program. And if the child was going for blood work for the same reason, we could make sure that if it was a child who was a high priority patient, emergency patient, they would get their blood work done more urgently than other children. So lots of other elements to this quality improvement within the facility. But most importantly, we could give Stephen a dashboard on his desk as the chief of the hospital so that he could also know exactly what was going on with each day, what was actually going on in the facility. And if a child reached the threshold that he had chosen for delay of treatment, he could actually go and see what was what was going on. That's incredible. I would love to know what type of effect it would have to make that transition between having the research nurse and then the lanyard tracking system with the Bluetooth on Hawthorne effect with this project and how people carried out their daily activities. Yeah. So there were some very interesting things from these studies, which we maybe didn't highlight, which is getting to exactly your point. There's many other things that you impact that you don't necessarily appreciate. So you'll look in the paper, we had a very significant decrease in the percentage of admissions and in the percentage of children that got intravenous antibiotics. We didn't want too much emphasis on the on the paper, but we've had a lot of thought about this. And we have actually implemented this now at another four sites in Uganda and another site in Kenya with some control sites in a big step wedge design trial looking at this intervention and we've just coming to the end of that but these are consistent findings that we've found right throughout these studies and i think this is we don't really know we in some way we've changed the decision making process that just by providing this categorization or prioritization of care we've changed the clinician's decision making process whether that's around better information or whether that's around some reassurance that we've given them about this you know, risk categorization, we don't know. But we know that we 
have changed, essentially changed the system in a very unexpected way. It wasn't what we planned to plan to go to go and do. So I think there's a lot more work that we need to do to understand some of these changes and maybe to improve the system, to leverage these changes, to look at you know other things that we can add on. And we've certainly had a real interest in looking at the use of antibiotics associated with the quality improvement within this program is an important thing, but that will be future work. Well, that really leads me into what I wanted to finish this interview speaking about, which was wondering what some of your plans were for the future and what you were considering looking at, and also just what you thought was your greatest achievement, which may have been, you know, some of the things that you've already been mentioning. Yeah. So I think our focus at this stage in a number of areas, probably the biggest focus is working with the electronic health vendors in both Kenya and Uganda to implement this process within their systems, because we believe that that's the most scalable approach. We think that it would also be scalable to work with manufacturers of vital equipment that measure vital signs, that we could actually put this algorithm, because it's really based on vital signs largely, that we could get a vital sign monitor essentially to create a risk score or a categorization that could come out of vital sign monitor. So the ongoing initiatives to actually make that part of our sustainability initiatives. But we also would like to, we've made lots of our quality improvement training that we've done, a lot around this, you know, available to anybody else who wanted to use this elsewhere, also really in this sort of open source world to make this available as we move this forward. But obviously there's lots of other issues around how we work within international standards organizations to help them understand that a data-driven approach is probably going to be better than using an expert opinion-based approach to actually driving some of these processes. So, and the way to do that is really to drive the science, to run further trials, to look at, you know, demonstrating that this improves outcome of these children. And I think we've managed to nudge that a little bit in changing those expectations. Yeah, well, overall, I just think the work is so interesting, so innovative and novel, but also very simple. And that's what I love about it. And that's why I wanted to discuss it on this podcast. So I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you very much, Allison. Thanks again for listening. And if you'd like to hear more from the Global Emergency Medicine Literature Group, please follow us on Twitter at G-E-M-L-R group or visit us on iTunes and leave us a rating.